If you're visiting with us this morning, um, I just want you to know um, that we typically at Gateway just work our way through a book of the Bible. Um, We don't believe that we have to make the Word of God relevant. We believe that it is. Uh, We just simply need to jump into the text and uh, allow it to show us that it's relevant. And with that in mind, I want to encourage you just to note an announcement in your bulletin. You may have read it. Um, Next week, we're going to be finishing up the book of uh, Exodus, right? Um, 66 sermons from the book of Exodus. We've taken our time. And um, the last sermon is going to be covering six chapters. So I'm taking volunteers for scripture reading for next Sunday. Um, Just kidding you. Um, Kind of. Um, But I want to encourage you. um, Part of the reason we're taking so much is because uh, verse, what, chapters 36 through 39 are really, for the most part, a repetition of the law that was given already, but with some nuances. So we want to address the nuances, um, but we don't just want to kind of go through all the same stuff again. Uh, that would be redundant, but there are some things that God wants us to see there. But the benefit is going to come for you if you actually take time this week to read through those six chapters uh, with, with eyes that are looking for what God is showing you and um, being ready for next week, and hopefully it'll be a good, uh, it'll be a good end to this series. And um, praise God for the book of, of Exodus. Honestly, um, I did not realize how Exodus was going to be so, uh, so essential to my understanding of the gospel. Um, it is pregnant with all the themes that uh, we see in the New Testament, and I wish I had preached through Exodus years ago in my ministry. Um, I would have been far better for it. Um, but uh, anyway, here we are, and uh, we're in the book of Exodus and chapter 34. So if you get your Bibles, turn to Exodus 34, and we are going to stand together. We're going to read this chapter, and we're going to trust that God is going to direct us and speak to us through this chapter. Exodus chapter 34, and um, <clears throat> we're reading from the English Standard Version, and uh, if you want to follow, you can also on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and obtain abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the generation or on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. 
And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are uh, shall see the work of the Lord, for it is in For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month Abib. For in, in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that the womb, uh, uh, all that open the womb are mine. All the male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruit of, uh, of wheat harvest, and the feast of in gathering at the year's end. Three times in the year you shall, uh, in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders so that uh, in borders no one shall covet your land when you go up and appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he, uh, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the, of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put 
the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Lord, we come now to this very important passage of Scripture. Uh, Lord, not that any other passage is unimportant, but Lord, today this is important because this is where you are taking us, and we want to trust that you desire to impress upon us some things that we need this morning through the ministry of the Word here from Exodus 34. And so, Lord, I ask that what we know not, Lord, you would teach us, that we, what we have not, Lord, you would give us, and, Lord, that what we are not, you would make us, and that I, as your messenger, Lord, would simply be used to reflect the truth of your text so that your people can continue to grow toward Christlikeness, and that those that don't know you will be gripped by the truth and the reality of their sinfulness and be amazed at the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you now be glorified, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, probably the most famous prayer of repentance we have recorded in the Bible is David's prayer that we find in Psalm 51. You might want to just turn there because I'm going to make a couple of uh, statements from there. But if you remember, this psalm is... David's prayer of repentance after he has committed sin by committing adultery with Bathsheba and then lying and then orchestrating the murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah. And you even add to that the fact that Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was loyal to him. I mean, this is just a horrible thing. And God confronted him through the prophet Nathan and David is consumed with his sin. He turns to God in repentance. And one of the things that we find in this psalm is found in verse 4, where David pours out his heart in confession to God, and he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And what we, what we were reminded there is that although his sin may have been directed at particular people, ultimately David knew that his sin was directed against God. And that is one of the, the foundational truths of actually coming to a place of repentance, to realize that we are sinning against God. But he also appeals to God for cleansing, to be washed and to be whiter than snow. But ultimately he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So David is praying uh, not just for forgiveness and cleansing, but that the joy that comes through God's salvation would be restored to him. In other words, he recognized that he lost something by virtue of his sin. And he's thankful for cleansing. He's thankful for, uh, for the forgiveness that he's received. But he also wants to be restored. And friends, this is a struggle for many of us. We want to live for the Lord, but we're so easily drawn away into our sin. And we fall flat on our faces. And if people really knew, if people knew the kind of things that were going on in our heart and our mind in particular when we lay our head on the pillow at night and they could see the sinful struggles that we had, they would realize that our sin truly is grievous and that we are genuinely ashamed of where we are and what we have done and how we have offended God. And yet we wonder, will we truly be restored? Will God really accept us? Will God continue to keep his promises to us when we fail him again 
and again and again and again. Anyone relate to that? Yeah, if you're not saying yes, I don't know what kind of human being you are. This is where we live, friends. This is the struggle that we often have. And we might even get the feeling to say to ourselves and to say into our heart, is, is he just tolerating me? Is he just putting up with me? And friends, what we find as we, we come to this text is an answer to that question. There's a, a show that I've watched a number of times on, on Netflix. You may have seen it before. It's called The Repair Shop. Now, really, the reason I like it is not because it's, it's British, because that does make a difference, right? But, but it's the repair shop. And what happens is people bring all these kind of old artifacts from different places, and sometimes they're clocks, sometimes they're, they're, they're beautiful ceramics that have somehow got a crack in them and they're broken or they're chipped off. There's some old furniture. Sometimes it's, it's jewelry that's been passed down through the generations. Uh, sometimes it's even clothing that, that has some significant or sentimental value. And the people bring them in, and with all those items, there's a backstory. There's some reason why this is important. And so they hand them over to the experts in those various fields, and they leave them with them for a few weeks. And then they come back, and the experts have taken them, and they have restored them, not to perfection, but they've restored them to the place where they're once again something to enjoy and something that is beautiful. Now, friends, I share that illustration because I think what we realize here is that what God does with us when we have sinned, when we are forgiven, and when we have actually experienced the consequences of our sin is that he is the one who is the expert who can actually bring proper and right restoration. In fact, he's the only one that can restore us. And what we have here in this particular passage now, having seen what has gone, gone on in the life of Israel up to this point, is that God is restoring Israel, but in particular we see here the glory of God's restoration. We have Israel being restored to their covenant, but, but behind that, pushing that, laced in through all of that, is the glory of God on display. So Israel had sinned. They had been judged for their sin. They had repented. Now God will restore them once again to the covenant promise he made with them, this covenant promise that they had broken. And as we work through this text, we want to be mindful of how God restores us for his glory when we have sinned, repented, and been forgiven. Now just the structure of this chapter if you remember, this is very similar to what happened already with Moses. But what we have here in verses 1 through 9 is Moses going up the mountain. In verses 10 through 28, we have Moses staying up on the mountain. And then we have in verses 29 through 35, Moses coming down again from the mountain. So, there's kind of a, a geographical structure to what's going on, but there are things happening then in each of those locations. So there's a going up, there's a staying up, and there's a coming down. So let's first of all consider, as we think about the glory of God's restoration, that in this going up, that the tablets are restored. The tablets are restored. And I want to draw your attention to what I'm calling the grace of God's commandment, because this begins now, this passage begins with a commandment from God. And what I would like to stress to you is God's words of commandment to Moses 
are an act of grace for Moses and for Israel. Israel had sinned when they rebelliously crafted and worshipped the golden calf. Israel had repented when they mourned over their sin and its consequences, and they stripped themselves, if you remember, of any remnant of their idolatry. And Moses had mediated for them, appealing to God on behalf of Israel. So when God speaks these words, although they are words of commandment, they are also words of kindness and grace. And just friends, just pause here. Okay, we've got this little thing in our thinking sometimes that when God commands, it's like, ugh, he's just out to rain on my parade. But God's commandments are good. And here, his commandments, his instructions, his guidance is for Moses and Israel's benefit. Let's just look and see what he says. Cut for yourselves two tablets, right? He says, be ready in verse two. He says, come up. He says, present yourself. Verse three, no one shall come up with you. Let no flocks or herds graze. So he's giving instructions about Moses, uh, what you should do. Some of them are instructions to come, to cut the stones, and to say, hey, you need to have some restrictions here. So the animals need to keep out. The people need to be kept out. Let's just work through these three sections just briefly here. God was going to write the exact same commandments that were on the first two tablets. The only difference between the the first two tablets and the, the second two tablets is that Moses had to cut out the stone and bring it up to God. But the point is this. The Lord is restoring or reinstituting the covenant. The covenant was to be fully restored. Now remember, God is not angry with Moses that he broke the tablets. I think if you ask the people out there, generally speaking, about this story, if they had any comprehension of it at all, they would think that the reason that that Moses broke the tablets is because he was so angry with Israel that he just threw them down And that's it. And there's an element of truth to that, except what Moses was doing was was acting in his prophetic role to symbolize that Israel has broken their covenant with God. So God's not angry with Moses. Moses represented God by breaking those tablets. But now, in a symbolic way, God is restoring the tablets. He's restoring this covenant. He's restoring this relationship. Forgiveness has taken place. But now there's something, some groundwork that needs to be relayed again to make sure that Israel comes once again as God's people to be God's people, embracing the same promises that they had before. So then we have this be ready, come up, present yourself once again. I say once again, this is just the same thing that happened before. The first time he goes up. He journeys up to the top of the mountain to present himself before before God. And again, there are these restrictions. Friends, when God restores us, he brings us back to the same gospel. Now just hear this. It's the same commandments, the same God, the same promises. He doesn't put us in a different category after we sinned and after we've been restored. As if over here, this is where the failed Christians go. And over here, this is, this is where the, the model Christians go. That falls flat on its face. Why? Because we're all failed Christians. 
So there's not a second-class status. There's not kind of a, a new paradigm. There's not a new set of rules or commandments for you. You're brought back once again. You're restored to the same God, the same gospel, the same life of walking with Him. And friends, that is good news. Because we stumble and we fall. And yet God says, I'm restoring you back fully and completely. This is the grace of God's commandment to us when we've sinned. But now notice God continues on to actually answer the prayer that Moses had, had, had uh, requested in chapter 33, where he says, show me your glory. Now we see the glory of God's proclamation. God had promised to show Moses his glory. And now this is promises being fulfilled. And so he proclaims the name or the character or the essence of God, the Lord, the, the weightiness of the Lord. Now what's important for us to see here is that Moses learns more about glory not by seeing God. There's nothing mentioned here about what Moses sees when he encounters uh, God, or, or, or he even is exposed to the hinder parts of the afterglow of God. What he does see is the glory of God through the Lord's proclamation. In other words, God reveals himself through his words. Again, friends, it's a reminder for us not to pursue experience, but it is to pursue God who is revealed in and through his word. And so we have in verses, what, verses 5 through uh, 11 here, no, 5 through 7 here, uh, this wonderful picture of who God is. We're just going to summarize it today. A little later in uh, a couple of weeks, we're going to dig into this more. But what we see here is the good and consistent aspects of God's character. I was going to say the positives and the negatives of God's character, but there's nothing here that's negative. From our perspective, it's negative, but it's not. It's good. It's consistent, right? We see, first of all, God's kindness revealed to us with these five characteristics. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He is forgiving of our iniquity, our transgression, and our sin. That's God's kindness. But we also see God's justice. Now, see, friends, justice, God's justice is a good thing. To have a just judge is a good thing. That means he's going to act. He's going to behave rightly. And sometimes that right behavior means that judgment must come. So God will not clear the guilty, we're told, but will be consistent to carry out his justice throughout the generations. And the only way that God can extend his mercy to sinful people is by providing a righteous substitute who atones for man's sin. That's why Paul says in Romans 3 that by putting Christ forward as a propitiation or as a covering or as an atonement by his blood, God showed himself to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, God had to exercise justice, and he exercises that justice not on you, but on Christ. But it also says, kind of a, a scratch head kind of a statement here, that God also visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, friends, please hear this. There's some really bad teaching that comes out of a statement like this. 
This is not saying that children are cursed because of the sins of their parents. This is not teaching that the children are accountable for their parents' sins. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 16, we find clarity to what is going on here. We're told here that fathers shall not be put to death because of their their children. Now, as a parent of four who were teenagers, that's a good thing. Nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Everyone is responsible for their own actions. And friends, this is especially important right now in our culture today with all this emphasis on reparations for what your ancestors did. Biblically speaking, you and I are not responsible for those things. Even if it was my father, my father chose to do what my father chose to do, and he's accountable to God for what he's doing. I'm not responsible and accountable for him. Yet society wants to push that. So biblically speaking, they're off base. Now, having said all that, what this truth is teaching us is that children watch the sin of their parents and will likely follow their example generation after generation. Now, friends, this is a window, isn't it, into what we should be striving for when uh, or if we want to see God and to know God. So when Moses appeals to God to show me your glory, God responds by revealing the essence and nature of his character and his attributes. And that is why when we study God's word, we're always asking the question of the text, what does this passage teach me about the character and the attributes of God? See, behind, although God may not be specifically mentioned in the text, He is the author behind the text. And he's revealing something about his character in that text. And the pages of Scripture don't just give us a theology lesson that simply defines God's attributes. No, we see God's attributes at work and on display in the dealings with Israel and the church and and people in general. So look to grow in your awareness of the descriptions and demonstrations of God's attributes. It's helpful here to be reminded of A.W. Tozer's very famous quote, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because if you have a distorted view of God, then you have a distorted view of yourself and you have a distorted view of the world. So we should always be striving to embrace what God has revealed about himself. And that's what God is doing now for Moses. And how does Moses now respond? Here we have the goal of Moses' petition. We can summarize it in in these three statements. God, please come with us. If you remember last week, it was all about the presence of God. And God was saying, no, I'm not going to come with you. And now he's saying it again. He says, please pardon us. Forgive us of our sin. We're a stiff-necked people. And then he's saying, please restore us, right? He says there at the end, and take us for your inheritance. Now, what we need to see here is that Moses' prayer is a repetition of other prayers he has made thus far in Exodus. And some will come to this passage and they'll say, well, Moses must be then exercising a lack of faith in God to simply repeat what he's already prayed. And God has already said that he's going to do these things. But friends, isn't it the nature of prayer to repeat what we know to be true? Just draw your attention to the Lord's Prayer, if you would, please. 
This is what it says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is Jesus speaking, right? This is the model prayer. God has promised to take care of us, hasn't he? Yet he calls us to pray for what he promises. We pray for his kingdom to come, yet we know that it will. We pray for our daily bread, yet he's already promised to meet our needs. We pray for forgiveness, which God has promised over and over and over again to grant us. We pray for help with temptation and deliverance from evil, yet he has already given us his word that he is with us and guiding us through those times. Yet he calls us to pray for what we already know to be true. That's the pattern of prayer. Because it reminds us of those things that are true. And sometimes prayer is communicating to God what he's already promised to us so that we are reminded of what God has already communicated to us and we embrace it through prayer and we say, you know, I'm going to trust that promise. And so Moses is coming to God saying, God, please do these things that you've already promised that you would do. Now, friends, it's a wonderful thing just to begin here by saying, These stones are going to be restored. There's there's a restoring happening here. There's progress happening for the people. But we move now from this first point of the tablets being restored to now the covenant being renewed. This is what's happening now while he's at the top of the mountain. And this is the, 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 the larger part of the text. And I want you to notice, first of all, that God renews his covenant with Israel. And these few verses, I think, are really helpful for us. And he said, behold, I'm making a covenant before all your your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you shall shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do to you. Just a couple of things now, just to draw our attention to. First of all, don't skip over this incredible statement that God says, behold, I am making a covenant. He's saying basically this, look, look, Moses, look, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm restoring this covenant. I'm doing what you've been praying for. All that you've asked for, all that that I've promised you, I am going to do for you to be with you again, to forgive Israel, uh, to claim them as my own inheritance. And this will be the basis of God's restated commands to come. But notice also the glory that is revealed. Because he says here, I will do marvels before you. So Israel is going to see his marvels, as well as I will make the nation see me through my dealings with you. In other words, Israel, are, they're going to be the agents of declaring the glory of God. Again, the privilege that God would still work through them, even though they have fallen in sin and now they're being restored. He's saying, I'm still going to work through you. And here's the theme of the book of Exodus again. Let me remind you, it's there on your handout, just in the, in the, in the, in the, the title there, that, um, that, that God says, I will be known. And throughout this whole, uh, this whole book, God, Yahweh, has desired to be known to Israel. He desires to be known uh, to Pharaoh in Egypt through all the plagues. I mean, almost every time Moses comes and speaks to Pharaoh, he says, 
God is doing this, that you will know who he is, that he is the Lord, right? In fact, we have in Exodus chapter 14, verse 4, this is while Israel is encamped by the Red Sea and the armies of Egypt are coming with Pharaoh as their leader. And we're told here that God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. This is the whole point. God wants Egypt to know that he is God. But not only that, Yahweh wants to be known in all the earth. This is even from our text here. All the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. My friends, when when God restores us, he restores us to shine his glory through us. It's a mark of our role and function as his children, not only the benefits of his glory, but we also are the channels of his glory. Listen to Psalm 96, verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. And of course, this is evident in the New Testament. Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul says in the end of the book of Romans, which, by the way, is, is basically a, a gospel tract for the Gentiles. He's saying here at chapter 16, verse 20, 25 and 26, he says this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. God desires to be seen and heard and glorified and known among the nations. So this is all happening now in seed form in the book of Exodus, but it spills forward into the New Testament. So God renews his covenant with Israel. Secondly, God restates his covenant with Israel. What we have here in verses 11 through 27 is a repetition of what God has said in chapters 20 through 23, but in summary form. In other words, the Ten Commandments and the case law are just kind of contained in these repeated words. So from you shall not make yourself any idols, verses 14 and verse 17, to you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, the whole law is being restated. Okay? Their commitment was to be to God and God alone. And they were to give careful attention to the details of the law that they had been given. So we have in this passage a bunch of the reminders of this, these, this case law, for the most part, giving of their firstborn, observing the Sabbath festivals, offering of various sacrifices, the offering of their firstfruits of the harvest, the influence of, of, of pay, the pagan culture around them, and ultimately, the boiling of a young goat in its mother's milk, which was a pagan act of worship. And basically, the point there is, don't allow your worship of me to be influenced and contaminated by the thinking and the practice of the pagan world, which, by the way, they had allowed to take place when they built the golden calf. So God is reminding them of his covenant commandments. He's restating them. You say, well, it just seems like, why, why do we have to go through all of that? And friends, what do all these commandments have in common? 
What ties them all together? They're all instructions given by God so that Israel can worship him properly. Again, you know, so many times when we think about the law in the Old Testament, we just think about it as being rigid and cold. And yet, these are instructions for his people to come before him and to worship him and to live for him with a heart of worship. In fact, if you remember, as the story unfolds, God called Israel out of Egypt to meet with him in the wilderness and ultimately to meet with him on the mountain. That's where they are right now. And we saw throughout that study then, through through Exodus, this, this expression, meet with him, it's also rendered serve him, it's also rendered sacrifice to him. And ultimately what it's speaking about is Israel coming and worshiping with their God. This is what God always wants, is for his people to come and worship him. Now, we must remember that worship is not just something people do one day of the week. We're worshiping God uh, is what we're called to do 24-7. And to properly worship God means that we're giving ourselves over to his will every moment of every day. So, is it any wonder that in the giving of these commandments that we're given a parenthetical statement in verse 14 that reads as follows. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, that's Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So God's just, as he's, as he's reminding the people of his commandments, of the case law that fleshes out his commandments, he's reminding them, look, I am a jealous God. When you go wandering off to other little g-gods, other people, when you stray from me, I am jealous for you. I am jealous for you to worship me and to worship me alone. And that's why this list of commandments in case law begins with a section dealing with Israel's relationship with the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Notice what it says in verses 12 through 16. Take care, take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. No, no, no. I'm making a covenant with you. You don't make a covenant with them. Lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. Verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited and you eat their, the, his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. I don't apologize for God's R-rated text. Because God begins right here this motif that we find throughout Scripture of the whoredom or the whoring of his people. Where Israel abandons God and runs after other gods and all that comes with that. The Lord is saying to them, just in case you're wondering, I, the Lord, the husband of Israel... I'm a jealous God. And sadly, years later, this jealous God would begin 
or it would bring about judgment on the people of Israel and the people of Judah because they were a split nation because of their unrestrained whoring with the nations around them. That would be Assyria and Babylon. And this is vividly and candidly spoken about in Ezekiel 23. You might want to turn there. Uh, you might be, if you've never read this passage, you might be just surprised at how many times this motif of whoring is used. We're only going to read a little bit of it. And in particular, verses 18 through 19, where God says of Judah, when she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her as I had turned in disgust from her sister. In other words, Israel had been doing the same thing. Yet she increased her whoring, get this, remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt, which is a reference to what has just taken place with Israel here in the wilderness with the golden calf and all the illicit activity that went along with it. Now, help, friends, it helps us understand the seriousness and the sinfulness of the sin that Israel was committing when they not only crafted the golden calf, but they bowed down to worship it, and it turned into a sensual orgy. And yet God is willing to restore even Israel. After Israel's mediator comes to God on behalf of the people to ask forgiveness and to be reinstated as God's own people, God renews and restates his covenant with his people. So is it any wonder that when we go to the New Testament, this husband and wife motifs finds its way into the New Testament to describe Christ's relationship with the church, where we have the faithful husband and we have the bride of Christ. So God here restates now his covenant with Israel. God is saying, you know what? I am restoring it. I am reminding you by rewriting it. And that's what's happening specifically. God rewrites his covenant with Israel through the hand of Moses. Verse 27, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there for the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Again, what we see here is the importance of the written word. God doesn't tell Israel Look, if you're struggling with me, go find a mountain. Follow Moses' example, get up to the top of the mountain. That was a unique instruction for Moses for him to meet with God in a place where, where, he was, where, where, where God was going to be separated from the rest of the people. He was speaking to his chosen mediator. The emphasis here in the text is what is written and what has been written then on these tablets. Notice, we, we must recognize here that what appears to be a contradiction in this text is actually not a contradiction. Look back, if you would, at verse 1 of this chapter. There we read, God says to Moses, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet 
which you broke. So God wrote the words in verse 1. You see that? Now you come to this verse here in verse 28. We're told that it was Moses who writes these words. So who wrote these words? Ah, see, you can't trust the Bible. It's contradictory. Well, what appears to be a contradiction is really no contradiction at all. What this apparent contradiction teaches us is the fact that God both revealed and recorded his word, but he does throw through individuals that he has chosen. So who wrote the Ten Commandments? Well, Moses did. He's the author of Exodus. Well, who wrote the Ten Commandments? God did. God is the breath behind Moses, who is authoring the the book of Exodus. You see that? It's both God and Moses. And this is why the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then the Apostle Peter reminds us that the fact that they were eyewitnesses for Christ's testimony in his majesty, but there is something far more reliable than their own personal experience. He says in verse 19 of 2 Peter chapter 1, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. We go down to verse 21. For no prophecy ever uh, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along. The idea is born. It's like the winds and the sail of a, of, a, of a yacht. God breathes out his word through these individuals, through these personalities. That's why when Paul writes his letters, they're very Pauline. They're like Paul. And when Peter writes his letters, they're like Peter. And we say, oh, this is definitely a Pauline thing. This is a Peter thing. But behind it all is God. So, friends, we, we, we learn here that when God rewrites his covenant with Israel, he is writing his covenant, but he's doing it through Moses. And remember, these two tablets were not two different tablets where you had, you know, some of the commandments on one and some of the commandments on the other. During the covenant law, you would have two documents that were identical, one for the people and one ultimately to go into the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? So God now has has restored the tablets. He's renewed the covenant. And friends, it's again, it's a reminder that even here in the Old Testament, when God is speaking to Moses face to face, what really mattered is what God says, not what God looks like, and not even what his afterglow looks like. We can't handle seeing God. God knows that. But we can't handle hearing from God. And in his divine wisdom, he's revealed himself to us by breathing out his word and recording it for us in what we now call the Bible. So what was once a disastrous word, that was from chapter 33, now has become a delightful word because God is renewing this covenant with them. Now, let's move on to this last section. This last section all has to do with glory and the glory that is reflected in particular in the face of Moses. This is what happens when he comes down. He spent 40 days and 40 days in the presence of God. And we're told here that, that, that Moses now comes down 
But friends, this is not the first place in our text that the emphasis or the the, the presence of the glory of God has been on display. We first saw it, uh, God's glory in verses 6 through 7, where God's glory passed by Moses and God's, God proclaimed or revealed his character and his attributes. We saw it again when we encountered God's glory in verse 10, where God's glory is seen by Israel and among the nations. Uh, all of his marvelous work takes place. So, so God's glory has been on display twice already in these different sections as God has been revealing himself. But here, when Moses comes down the mountain with the two tablets in his hand, he is unaware that the skin of his face is shining. Now notice the word behold. It's in verse 30. It lets us know that what they're seeing is significant. Behold. Pay attention, look, and the idea of the word shone is that his face was sending out rays. So this wasn't sunburn as if now what they're seeing is the effect on his face of something. What they're seeing is more like a sunbeam emanating from his face. This is why they're afraid. This is why they're shocked. This isn't normal. But just think about Israel. Think about the wilderness. What do you not have too much of in the wilderness? Trees. Shade. People are used to seeing people who have sunburn. They're not used to seeing people whose face radiates the glory of God. And so the people were rightly afraid. There is fear. And friends, it's... it's, it's, This is one of the things that we find as we go through the pages of God's word. When God's glory is on display, when there are glimpses of his glory that are revealed, people respond in fear. Don't think you wouldn't. Because you've not seen the glory of God. All you've seen is the word that describes the glory of God. But if you were to see it, you would bow down in fear. And again, it's just a reminder that we don't realize how holy and awesome and majestic God actually is and how sinful and abhorrent we really are. And yet God reconciles us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's just an amazing truth, isn't it? And it's a reminder that apart from Christ, God is not our friend. He is the consuming fire. And apart from Christ, God is our enemy, and it is only through Christ that we draw near to God without being terrified or condemned by his glory. We don't play loose and fast with the glory of God. Now, friends, Moses' shining face points to Jesus as the one in whom God's glory is perfectly on display. You recall the opening words of the Gospel of John. Just hear them. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law, this is verse 17, was given through Moses. Ah, there's a connection to us right now. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. See, again, here's Exodus. Here's it spilling over into the Gospels, right? We also remember the writer of Hebrews who says at the beginning of that letter that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
That teaches us that Jesus' divine glory was hidden beneath the veil of his human nature during the period of his humiliation. That means the period where he humbled himself and came to this earth. But on one occasion, when his glory was made manifest, was on the Mount of Transfiguration. You may remember that story. On that mountain, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus' clothes become radiantly white. And they saw also there Moses and Elijah who were with him, which signified the law and the prophets, which pointed to Christ. And God spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The transfiguration testified that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God and the one true mediator between God and man. God wants us to see in the face of Moses, one who is greater than Moses, radiating the glory of the Father to us. That's Jesus Christ doing that through the gospel. But notice not only is there fear, but there's also reassurance. It took a while, but finally Aaron, the leaders of the people, returned to Moses. And he, we're told, commanded them all that the Lord had spoken on Mount Sinai where he had just come from. When he was done, he put a veil over his face. So we've considered Moses' face, but now we, we want to consider this, this veil, Moses' veil. It appears that for the benefit of the people, when Moses wasn't speaking with God, he would put a veil over his face. This likely took place until the tabernacle was built and was functioning. Now, when we turn to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul's writings in particular, we become aware of something else. In fact, the, the, the writings of Paul clarify some things that happened in this text, in God's intention of this text. And I want to invite you to, to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3. Now, we're not gonna, I'm not going to preach a whole other sermon from 2 Corinthians 3, although there's lots here to connect to what's happening in our text. And we've been here a little bit before. But what he's doing is he's making a comparison between the old covenant, which he describes as the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. And he's not putting down the old covenant, but he's describing the extent of the old covenant, what it could and couldn't do. And he's comparing that with the new covenant. In other words, the covenant that Jesus brings with the gospel described in this text as the ministry of righteousness. I'm going to pick it up in verse, uh, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that is, the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. You see what he's doing? He's saying, look, the old covenant was good, but it was insufficient. The, the, the glory that we find there compared to the glory that we have now doesn't compare. Indeed, he says in verse 10, in this case, what once had glory has, become, has come to have no glory at all. It's not saying that, that there wasn't any glory. He's just saying when you compare it to the two, it's kind of like the commercials on TV, right? Here is Tide. This is what we used to sell you. We don't want you to buy that anymore. We want you to buy new and improved Tide. That new and improved Tide is better than the old Tide. 
Now, we told you the old tithe was good because it was. It did its job. But now we have a better tithe. You see, it's the same idea. The glory that we have in the old covenant was good. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. But it was limited. But now we have this glory with the new covenant. This is the glory that far exceeds. Again, indeed, in this case, this is verse 10, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what will, uh, will what is permanent have glory. So Paul is saying, look, the glory of the New Testament exceeds the glory that was present in the Old Covenant, making it seem like the glory of the Old Covenant was no glory at all. We continue reading verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened for this day when they read the Old Testament that the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. There's two things we need to see here. See, I think if we came to this passage without the help of the New Testament, we would say to ourselves, ah, the reason Moses is wearing this veil it's because this glory is just too much for the people to handle. And there may be an element of truth. What Paul is telling us is the reason that Moses is wearing the veil is to actually shield the fact that that glory was diminishing. It was coming to an end. It was fading away. But the glory that comes with the new covenant is permanent. You see that? Now you might need to read through this again and kind of get all the logic that's going on here. Secondly, notice that man whose heart and mind is hardened to the gospel has a veil over his heart. He can't see even these aspects of the glory of God. Verse, um, pick it up at verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That can only happen when the veil's removed. That's what happens when we encounter Christ, when we're born again, when the gospel is realized in our lives. So the, the new ministry of righteousness, which we are now participating in through faith, in the gospel, has the power to transform us and actually make us righteous. And this is already taking place in our sanctification and will be brought to completion at our glorification. So when we behold God's glory in Jesus Christ, the Spirit transforms us so that we begin to reflect God's glory. Now let the words of Paul settle in. He is saying that if you're a Christian, then God is doing a work in you that is far more glorious than what he did when he caused Moses' face to shine. I mean, just ponder that. I mean, we look at this passage like, look at what God is doing with, with, with Israel. Look at what he's doing with Moses. Moses is going up a mountain. He's meeting with God face to face. Friends, that doesn't compare to what privileges we have with Christ. That's what he's saying. So if you know God, then you're being changed and God is causing you to reflect his glory in a manner that will never 
ever fade away. This is the glory of God's restoration, friends. He is the expert craftsman who was working on us in order to grow us and mature us. And I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. He is the one who is the expert working on us. And he works in and through us even though we sin. And even though we sin and we come repenting, asking for forgiveness, he is still in the process of bringing his good work in us to completion. That just boggles my mind. I know how irritated I would be if someone just continually didn't listen did their own thing, ran away, didn't trust me, and then came running back saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and it happened over and over again. In my humanity, it would just be like, I, I give up. I want a new paradigm. Not God. He says, you are fully restored to the same standard, to the same gospel, to the same God, to the same hope. As we bring it to a close here, we've seen in Exodus 34 how the glory of God is at work in Israel's restoration. So now, as we conclude our time, let's quickly reflect on how God's glory is at work in our lives through the gospel. I have just seven concluding thoughts. You say seven. We're going to be here till one o'clock. I'll try and get you out a little before then. I'm just gonna I'm gonna buzz through these, but let you ponder them. And the goal the goal here is to is to leave you thinking. All right. First of all, God's glory offends us. This is what happens, and this is what's happening in our society today. This is Romans one twenty three. It says, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Man is offended at God's glory, rejects him, and therefore creates their own kind of God. Secondly, God's glory exposes us, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the standard by which we are measured. It is his very essence, and we come nowhere near his very essence. We are sinful creatures. We're not holy but it exposes us for who we really are. Number three, God's glory saves us. We find in Ephesians chapter one, and I'm just listing verse 14 up there, but you could put the whole of chapter one up to verse 14 because it it tells us that God chose us, he predestined us, he adopts us, and he does all of these things to the praise of his glory. God is glorified. By your conversion. And God has been thinking about that a long time, which means he's fully aware of your sinfulness. And yet he is drawing you to himself and he's bringing his wonderful regeneration to your life. God's glory, number four, guides us. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's a youth pastor's text, you know that. Kind of catches everything. 
but it should remind us that although Paul is arguing for something specific there, there is this general principle that, that life should be lived in light of God's glory. Number five, God's glory strengthens us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. It's not you of yourself that has the strength and the power to do that one thing. It is the glory of God that is at work in and through you. So when you have been, say, faithful to testify, or when you've put on some some aspect of the attributes of Christ, it's not because you're such a great person. No, it's because of the work of God in you. It's the glory of God at work in you. God's glory changes us. We already read the passage. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God is in this process of taking us from a place of new Christian to growing us to be more and more mature through our life until we get to the place where we are glorified. We either die and we're taken up to heaven or the Lord comes and returns and we're restored to be with him. But we're glorified and he in that process is changing us from one aspect of glory to another. And finally, the glory of God anchors us. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live our lives anchored with the certainty that this glory is going to be realized in being present at home with him. Friends, the glory of our restoration is rooted in him. Lord, help us today. We have labored long and hard in this text, and yet, Lord, I'm convinced that there are people here that need to be reminded that their restoration is not limited from God's perspective, that with their restoration comes the fuel and the power and the certainty of your glory being at work in their lives to restore them fully and completely as your children, as heirs. And Lord, help us when we consider our own sinfulness, when we consider uh, coming to you and repenting of our sin, to be confident that when we come boldly to the throne of grace, that when we are granted that forgiveness, that we are fully restored. That we are not placed in some second-class citizen category. That we are fully and completely your children. Oh Lord, we would not behave this way. We would find excuses to put people in all sorts of categories. But Lord, you by your grace and your mercy and your kindness continue to be patient with us, to be with us, to journey along with us to the place that that you've, you've determined that we would go. We are in awe. But Lord, help us to be in awe that is also full of an accurate knowledge of who you are and what you're like. Lord, may we see the sinfulness, the gross sinfulness of our sin. May you expose it. May it be on display before you. And Lord, may we acknowledge it. May we confess it. 
so that there could be true forgiveness and full and complete restoration, Lord. And then help us as the body of Christ, not to look with con- condemnation on one another, but Lord, to look with, with, with confidence and, and care and uh, with a heart of encouragement to say, Christ is the answer. He will receive you. Yes, even again restored fully by your glory. What an amazing act of grace. Thank you, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.